This is In Deep. I'm Angie Coro. You have had a couple days to calm down after the Supreme Court health care ruling. Now we look ahead to see what it means for future political planning. And we hear from both gatherings in Philadelphia as we come up to Independence Day, the big national gathering of Occupy and Continental Congress 2.0, which has had to scale back its ambitions. That's all coming up on In Deep. I'm called Little Buttercup. Our demented Little Buttercup. It's that time of week when we check in and get the latest in news from our demented sidekick. Gotta laugh. Politics is weird and creepy. Indeed it is. (laughs) Hello, ma'am. Cracks me up every time. Listen, I I was thinking, um, seriously now, uh, let's get real serious. I was thinking of starting an armed rebellion against right-wing crazies armed rebellions. But then I kind of thought against it because I don't like guns. So. <laughs> a definite downside in an armed rebellion. But, yeah. <laughs> but we're hearing that work. rhetoric again. The armed rebellion rhetoric is back. It is. Uh, here is a former spokesman for the Michigan Republican Party. His name is Matthew Davis. And uh, he wrote an email after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of President, o- President Obama's Affordable Care Act. And in that email, he said the following. In 2008, we the people elect Barack Obama as president and the 100-year progressive trek to tyranny begun in 1912 with Woodrow Wilson's election was complete. America itself was uh, was possible only after its people summoned the will to risk their lives and their futures as well as those of their children for a freedom they did not enjoy but knew was their gift from God. If the Supreme Court's decision Thursday paves the way for throat clear, unprecedented intrusion into personal decisions, she said with a laugh, then has the Republic (laughs) all but ceased to exist? If so, then is armed rebellion today justified? God willing, this oppression will be lifted in America free again before the first shot is fired. What is this thing where they always go to guns and violence right away? What what is wrong with these people? And what is this thing where they say that we're intruding when, in fact, they intrude on women's rights constantly, women's reproductive rights, abortion rights. Hello? Oh, that's, that's the famous vagina exclusion. Vaginas are yeah. excluded from all personal rights. You know, all his writing needs is Don LaFontaine going, in a world. Because <laughs> he's making this <laughs> horror right. movie here. Exactly. So, speaking of horror movies, Eric, Eric Holder got held in contempt by Congress this week. But we saw some Democrats with spines and some without. Yes. Uh, some walked away and some walked right smack into the wall of the NRA that, um, you know, that bought them. There were 17 Democrats that voted with the GOP and the NRA to uh, hold, hold her in contempt. And then there were those, including Nancy Pelosi and the Congressional Black Caucus, who walked out, who walked out of the session in the middle because they said, and I'm quoting Nancy Pelosi, uh, it was a shameful act by the House GOP. Good for them. I'm very Absolutely. proud of her. Very, Me too. And of them. The other 17, we, we're going to have to hold them accountable. This, yeah, this is what 17, uh, Indiana, Minnesota, Ar- uh, Arkansas, I believe it is. Uh, there was a, there's a list that I put up on the politicalcarnival.net, and you can also go to the House site. Indiana is embarrassing again. You know, I'm pretty soon going to start saying I'm from California, because I'm, I'm tired of being embarrassed to be a Hoosier. <laughs> Absolutely. What, you know, we need a little levity if we have this kind of heavy stuff going on, and that was provided by CNN in an effort to be first with the news this week. 
Oh my God! CNN put up the wrong Chiron. They said that uh, that the healthcare act had been defeated, and so of course the GOP on Twitter collectively, you know, roared in in approval, and they started tweeting. And for example, Daryl Daryl Issa of all people, this is a big win for liberty in the Constitution. And you know what? He was right. It was a big win for liberty in the Constitution. <laughs> Uh, Virginia Fox, uh, unconstitutional. SCOTUS overturns Obamacare's individual insurance mandate. Developing. And then uh, Dennis Ross, Republican, uh, individual mandate ruled unconstitutional. Let freedom ring! <laughs> ding dong, ding ling. <laughs> I, you know, I was really grateful to the folks over at Think Progress. Of course, you're with politicalcarnival.net, and all these stories are linked up there, so people can check that out. But a little aside on that popped up with Think Progress, and that's Representative Gene Schmidt, who right. was apparently outdoors somewhere and saw that wrong headline and just lost it. She convulsed the, the, the Schmidt head, the, the, the Schmidt head who's known for, for doing kind of wacko things. She convulsed and she started squealing and, and sort of writhing around oddly. You oh, have to, oh, listen to her. What else? And she's contorting and she's shrieking. That's Gene Schmidt from, he's a Republican from Ohio, who was the first to demonstrate the newest form of personal stimulation by the Supreme Court. <laughs> oh, my. Who knew she had it in her? <laughs> I did, you know, I always wondered, you know, Republicans tend to be so incredibly anti-sex, and I thought, God, what gets these people off? It turns out it's mistaken <laughs> headlines from CNN. <laughs> well, that's why they don't need contraception. That's a very good point. <laughs> it's immaculate. You know, it's it's premature repubulation is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta laugh. That is delicious. And and I know that you've been looking at some of the crazy tweets that have gone out. So um, we're going to send people over to the politicalcarnival.net to be checking that out as well. Yes. Any any personal favorites on that one? Uh, no, the, the ISA one was the one that the one I read to you already. The, this is a big win for liberty in the Constitution, because even though he was trying to be, you know, sort of Republican about this. He actually just <laughs> cheered on the actual decision. So, yay, Daryl! Daryl not being entirely honest with his constituents. Will wonders never cease? Gotta laugh. Thank you so much, as ever. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Okay. Gotta laugh blogs at thepoliticalcarnival.net. You'll find that online at indeepradio.com. It's in deep. I'm Angie Coyro. Well, of course, the big news this week was the decision on behalf of the Supreme Court of the United States who said, yes, Obamacare will stand. And now that a few days have passed from that, we've gathered up some commentary and some analysis. What that means in terms of what further work needs to be done on the insurance system and what this means as a political decision. We'll get to that later in the hour. First, though, we turn our attention to a July 4th centered event. In fact, a pair of events going on in Philadelphia this week. One is the National Gathering of Occupy. The other one is Continental Congress 2.0. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Catherine Cryer, formerly of CNN, to talk about Continental Congress. Right now, we're talking to Julia Alfred Fowler, who is going to be at the National Gathering in Philadelphia. Julia, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me. So not hard for you to be joining it. You know, you're not having to cross country. You are right there in Philadelphia. But but not everyone in Occupy is, is going, to, going to really take part in this, some because of logistical reasons. But some, it appears, like, for example, I understand Pittsburgh not really participating. So let's narrow it down. Who is it who is participating in the National Gathering and, and what brings them together? 
I think what it is is that there are there's a common spirit in our country right now across Occupy, and we have all had this collective experience across the country over the past nine or ten months of working towards something and fighting something and fighting in our own cities to hold our space. And I think it's this really powerful bond that we've all experienced um, in our own cities. And I think there's this desire for us to all come together and be together and share in that experience together. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's the first part of it. I think the second part of it is that we're all really passionate about um, income inequality and corporate greed and all these things that we see as as um, quote unquote evils, however you define evils, that are really um, have a stranglehold on our country, and we want to find a way to fight them. And part of what we're coming together for on the last day, and in evening sessions during the week, and on the last day, we're really coming together to form a cohesive vision. Um, I say that with a little bit of hesitation because it's not going to be a declaration of demands from the Occupy movement. It won't be a ratified declaration that people can say, this is what Occupy is demanding. It's not. What it's going to be is um, a vision that expresses the views of everybody that's involved and the process that has been created Mm -hmm. is one that will enable the visions that people have that the most people share will rise to the top. So is, so, is that along the lines of, is that like a, a majority rule sort of set up? No, it's not, because it's not, it's not a decision of like these top 10 things are what we're going to be fighting for. It's that this is what we all believe collectively, and this is what we all want to see happen as a vision for a new democratic future. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is a vision for the people. Um, so it's kind of, sorry, I'm going to pause this can you ask me again what you asked me? Oh, sure. We, we were talking about whether this is this is breaks down to majority rules or not. Right, right, right. Okay, so it's not it's not majority rules because it's going to be a cohesive document that expresses every person's view that is both on site mm-hmm. and participating, as well as we are going to have an online component of it. So anyone um, from really across the world that wants to get involved and have their voice heard mm-hmm. will have a space to go do that on the 4th and participate. And so this document that we come up with will will be an expression of all of the views of people of Occupy. And then the ones that have um, the most people that state them over and over and over again mm-hmm. will be the ones that are sort of at the top. But everything will be represented throughout the entire document. When you look at the at the Occupy groups that are gathering I wonder how many of them have come. Well, let me back up and put it this way. We've had a, a number of Occupy people on the air. And, you know, our spirit at the show here is very much one of, of you know, standing for the 99%, et cetera. But I've noticed when you talk to people, the less they know about Occupy, the more inclined they are to say, that group doesn't have any goals. It doesn't have any spokespeople. It doesn't have any clear vision. They're out there protesting. But if you ask three of them, they'll give you three different opinions on what they're protesting. And the, I say all that as a preamble to ask you about the challenges of representing everyone when you're trying to get a point of view to adhere. I mean, we're not people who march in lockstep. We're not people who conform to an ideology. And and that's a big challenge. It is. I also think, you know, it's a big challenge, but I also think that, it's, in my opinion, it's the most beautiful thing about the movement. Because the way I see it is that Occupy is an umbrella. And that umbrella is, our country is messed up. 
people are hurting and suffering and dying in a lot of ways, and we have to do something about it. And there, and our world is going down the tubes, and we really have to bring ourselves together and fight. And so that's the overarching umbrella that encompasses everything about the environment, about feminism, about um, corporate personhood, about corporate greed, about income inequality, about police brutality, that if you look at the issues that the majority of occupiers, and really I would say almost like 99.9% of occupiers mm-hmm. are passionate about, in some way they all fit under that umbrella. That's a good image. And, and yeah. That, yeah. So we're all, we're all in this together under this big, and the thing that the corporate media and most people that don't really take the time to find out about it, what they don't get is that we're all fighting towards this thing and that all these things, if you really get to talk to people, it's, it's more about a caring for fellow human beings and for our world and, and being angry that our power has been taken away from us by these faceless corporations that assume that they're people, but they're not punished like people, or that their power is taken away by a police department or that their power is taken away by their government and that they have lost their voice and they want to regain their voice. I'm talking to Julia Alfred Fowler about the National Gathering of Occupy in Philadelphia from uh, June 30th up to July 4th, culminating on July 4th, which is also the day that the Continental Congress 2.0 is set to, to culminate. And Julia, I just found out today, I interviewed Catherine Cryer earlier today, and we'll be playing that interview in just a few minutes. But it was the first I had heard that the Continental Congress actually didn't have the anticipated funding to do the big, you know, the blowout opening with Lawrence Lessig and Catherine Cryer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what that indicates. I don't know if it means that there's not enough money behind that particular manifestation of some of the Occupy ideas. I know there's a cleft between the two groups over a couple different philosophical things. I, I, what does that say to you that the Continental Congress didn't really come together as planned? You know, I think, um, I want to be careful what I say, because I think the issues that a lot of occupiers have with what was originally the 99% declaration is now Continental Congress 2.0 was not a fight that they're out to fight. It was the way that they went about it and the way that they're setting up their structure for how their meetings are going to run. So, I mean, being in Philadelphia, they came to us to ask for our endorsement. And when they came to us, they had already gone to meet with our city officials to talk to them. And at that point, Occupy Philadelphia was not on good terms with their, with our city officials. So it was this, like, there was just a lot of things that they did in trying to set up the thing to where they weren't, able to get the support of people within Occupy mm-hmm. because of the way they were going about it. And also that it's, that they're not doing it in an inclusive manner, that they have these representatives that are coming, which I'm pretty sure are mostly male, um, and they're supposed to be delegates from each congressional district. But the basic foundation of Occupy is that we believe that everybody's voice is important and that representative democracy is a broken system and that it just doesn't work anymore and that we have the capacity with the technology that we have in this day and age we have the capacity to have everybody's voices heard so why would you have a meeting behind closed doors you have to show id and go through a background check beforehand 
to get into. It just didn't make sense to us. And, you know, there were a lot of other issues that they had. So I think that those issues that weren't properly addressed and that they were necessarily listened to um, made them lose the support of Occupy. And that might be why they didn't get their funding. I think they were also asking for a, a lot more money than, obviously, than we're using to have our gathering in a park. Occupy is the... is the difference. There has... Occupy yeah, is a I great mean, example having, of stretching every dime. I mean, you, <laughs> Occupy yeah. really knows how to make money work. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, for example, we're having, like, we're not getting a permit, and so we're not going to have electricity. So instead, we're having bike generators to run our electricity. What does that ultimately say for the goal of Occupy, though? And I, and I know that to say the goal of Occupy is, is almost a misnomer right there because there are so many people represented. But is the goal ultimately a completely direct democracy? Is it finding some way to reclaim the representative democracy? Or is that what's going to come out of this gathering? Is that is that vision? I think we will start working towards what we what we want. Um, you know, it's a young movement. People tried us because at this point when the Tea Party existed, they were already running people for office. But it's a young movement, and we're spread out, and um, it's going to take us time to decide how we want to go about it. But I think that the, the general sense that I get from people that I talk to um, and my own general sense is that their representative democracy system, it just, it's not cutting it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I think Bill Maher, well, I know Bill Maher came out and, and blasted us on a show a few weeks ago, um, for not running candidates for office. And our response to that was like, how can we, we can't take a reformist view to our government. That's, that's been tried. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You can't run for Congress or Senate or governor or mayor without having massive corporate funding behind you. So why would we, as people that are fighting corporations and are standing up to them and trying to call them to account, take money from them? It doesn't make sense. Well, in fact, um, on, that note, when on that note, I want to... Yes. <laughs> I just want to. I want to interject here on that note. I want our listeners to go listen to a web extra that we have on our website, indeepradio.com, where we've just interviewed George Martinez, who is an occupier who did run for office in Brooklyn, and and he's touching on a lot of the same points you are. So that's at our website, mm-hmm. web extra, indeepradio.com. Julia, that eats up our whole time, but I want to thank you so much for your time, and I Good. wish you the best thank of you. luck and the best outcome. Take care. Yeah, thanks you too. Around the corner, we're going to be talking to Catherine Cryer, who was originally scheduled to be a keynote speaker for Continental Congress 2.0. I'm Angie Cora. This is In Deep.
This is In Deep. I'm Angie Coro. Now we switch our attention to the other gathering in Philadelphia this week, the Continental Congress 2.0. And it's a number of people who have come together with many of the same philosophies as the 99% Occupy Wall Street movement, but a bit of a difference of opinion as to how some of these goals are best accomplished. And one of the people keynoting the event is Catherine Cryer. You're familiar with her from her TV career. She is also the author of a number of books, the most recent of which is Patriot Acts, What Americans Must Do to Save the Republic. Catherine Cryer is joining us from upstate New York. Catherine, thank you for taking time. Oh, you bet. My pleasure. Let me ask you what appealed to you about the idea of the Continental Congress enough that you decided to lend your name, which, granted, has, you know, a, a good amount of heft to it. Well, I, I, I must say this with all, all regret, because I was very, very excited. Uh, Lawrence Lessig was, was going to speak. I was going to speak. Um, but sadly... Uh, we received word that the, the attempts at funding, which which really wasn't you know, to, to pay us for anything, this was this was freebie on our part, but to to set up mics, to set up the outdoor facility, to do all the work uh, beyond the the delegate delegates in the convention itself couldn't be obtained. So we're not going to be doing it. Well, this reminds me of an old column, Was My Face Red? I was apparently not up to date on that. But I'm, t- tell me, uh, with that turn of events, what sort of impact will that have on the public attention this gets? Because, Frank, I mean, Lawrence Lessig, big name, yours, big name. And, and whether it's good or not, media turns its attention to big names and big events. So what, what does this cost Continental Congress if that's not going to oh, happen? Well, you know, I, I would love to, you know, let, let my ego rise to the ceiling and go, without me! Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, whoever would speak to have, you know, a big outdoor rally where the media was invited and, um, you know, I'll say someone like Lawrence Lessig, I'm a huge fan of his, um, that you know that has a value now in our in our world today you know the cameras swing past and you know maybe you get 30 seconds on on a newscast or maybe something is said that creates a little bigger debate so i'm not sure uh the effect but you know one of the concerns that i've had whether it's you know occupy wall street you know the the continental you know congress too and all of these things you know, need to to have a life beyond the immediate. Mm-hmm. And if if they don't figure out how to do that in our distracted, you know, overly informed, <laughs> not necessarily correctly, uh, world, then, then I'm not sure the effect. What was it that appealed to you about what Continental Congress is trying to do? Well, I, I was thrilled in that for years, for years, I've been saying we need boots on the ground here in the United States. And by that, I mean, you know, American citizens getting off their rears and actually becoming activists. The Tea Party did it. And, and I may disagree with much of what they expressed, but, you know, although right at the beginning, they were targeting their anger at Wall Street. They, they had the right message uh, early on. Um, but they were willing to get up, to get active, and most importantly, they ran for office and got elected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't care whether you're, you're left, right. I want citizens out there being active, you know, being the owners of this country, getting involved. Um, so all of that was brilliant. And to, to have the opportunity to speak on July 4th, you know, much of my uh, focus 
would be on who actually owns this country, what is thwarting us from that ownership role, including our own passivity or disillusionment or disaffection. Um, and I, I think that's that's one of my biggest fears. And right now, in looking at sort of Occupy Wall Street and the various groups and activities that have stemmed from that, um, my biggest concern is is how how do, do these groups move on to to actually affect change and not just raise consciousness if that in fact is is the goal. I'm fascinated that you brought up the origins of the Tea Party because the world moves so fast now. It sounds like ancient history, but when the Tea Party mm-hmm. first started, it was pretty quickly co-opted by by some moneyed interest from the right. But before that, it it really did have the beginnings of a grassroots movement of people who shared a genuine motivation to change things. And it, it's funny that it's very quickly become such a divisive. I mean, Tea Party. Well, remember too what what the reason they were angry at Wall Street. It mm-hmm. was the banks. It was the it was the you know oh seven oh eight financial crash. They they lasered in on the banks, and then Frank Luntz, you know the the wordsmith for the Republican Party, the the movers and shakers, the the Dick Armies and Freedom Watches. They co opted these guys, and they said, you know, quit looking at Wall Street. The problem is the Washington bureaucrats, you know, and they and then they they weighed the cultural issues, what I call God gazing guns. And when I say that, I don't mean disrespect to any of those issues. Right. But in fact, that's those are the that's that's sort of the trinity um, that is is used to rally people on cultural issues and divert their attention from the financial crisis. So they were they were effectively diverted, I believe, um, to where it's it's all Washington. And when Occupy Wall Street came along, they were again, same agenda, angry at Wall Street, um, but they said we're not going to be co opted by either group. And to some extent, you know, the Tea Party was co opted, but now look look what's happening. You know, the Republicans are riding the tiger and the tiger is beginning to eat them. <laughs> so maybe the Tea Party wasn't co-opted. They they have moved to basically take over the party, the Republican Party. Um, and on the other hand, Occupy Wall Street, I, I get and I and I admire the, you know, we're not going to, to be co-opted. We're going to be true, uh, demonstrate integrity, independence, honesty. But they just need to figure out then what is the path to actually instigating change, not, as I said, just elevating consciousness. Talking to Catherine Cryer, her most recent book is Patriot Acts, What Americans Must Do to Save the Republic. It's interesting. I want to delve into the whole concept of co-option, because we look at that as a cautionary tale from the Tea Party. You can take people's passions, and if they're properly manipulated, actually make them work against their worst interest or their best interest. And and looking at Occupy Wall Street, they are as opposed to the Continental Congress 2.0. They're part of a global movement. They identify with the Occupies around the world. And Continental Congress 2.0 is more focused on what's happening in America. And they're focusing on the idea of getting people into the elected party systems as quickly as possible, just as you say the Tea Party did, and very effectively. 
My question is, when you have people who are moving into a system like that, they can be very quickly overwhelmed. Uh, it reminds me of the candidate with Robert Redford. I mean, you know, there's so much passion that gets you into office. And then what do you do now? Yeah, I mean, what sort of qualifications can the Continental 2.0 people look for in their candidates where they know they can live with that kind of you know, huge job ahead of them? Oh, I mean that's that's tough because we love to think of our you know our citizen representatives and and when anyone you know, learns how many lawyers are are sitting in elected positions on Capitol Hill, they cringe. Um, so you know, I love the idea of of people you know, going as citizens running for office, taking a shot, making a stand, but at the same time, I, I can't help while I while I will defend. Um, I'm going to get in trouble. Well, I'll defend an idiot's right to run and get elected and serve. <laughs> yes, you're in trouble now. You are in trouble. I, I, I want a bunch of idiots running and getting elected and serving. And and I'm really concerned. One of the reasons I, I wrote this book, um, the, the, you know, the subtitle is What Americans Must Do to Save the Republic, is that I, I hear so much conversation now where um, people are proposing things suggesting things about this country that are the antithesis of a constitutional republic. They truly have no concept of what our founding system is, what, what, the, what the structure is, what the pillars of the republic are, and they are, are willing to take an axe to those to achieve their, their ideological goals. One of my favorite lines in the book is from uh, John Adams, and he said, ideology is the science of idiots. <laughs> and what he meant, obviously, is is if you if you get yourself in a box and go, you know, you know, this is my ideology, and I don't care what facts are out there, I don't care about empirical evidence, I don't care about you know what sort of the rules of a constitutional democracy are. You know, I believe X, Y, Z, and I will you know do what it takes and tear apart anything in my way to win my win over with my ideology. It's got to be defending the constitutional republic first and then having our, our great political, partisan, ideological fights on that level playing field under the rules of the game as established by our founding documents. But if you're willing to throw the rules out to win, then you are destroying the republic. Well, the, the irony is, uh, we've had Chris Mooney here on the show a number of times, a favorite guest of mine, because he's, he's so methodical in his approach to how people think and how their brains work while they're thinking. And one of the things we've learned about people who are, are you know, very strict about their ideology is their brains literally work differently. They seek authoritarian figures. They seek yes, no, dark, you know, black and white answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost as though we might be better to make the adherence to our constitutional principles our ideology, rather than fighting the fact that people tend to cling to, to ideologies, just go ahead and make that ours. Does that make sense? Well, but, but that's, I mean, it's, a, it's a rhetorical argument because you, you could ask uh, a member of the Tea Party or a um, Democrat, whoever, and they'll say, I'm defending the, the Constitution. I'm de I believe in this great country. I believe in the Founding Fathers. And it's only when you quiz them deeper that you discover whether or not they have any concept. I mean, if, if you talk to certain individuals, they are firmly convinced that this nation was founded, um, that the government is a Christian government. Yes. We are not a secular government. Now, I argue in the book, there are thousands of books, I'm sure, on the shelf, 
that that explain this. You know, secu- a secular government is not anti-religion at all, but it's simply not defined by religion. I actually quote in the book, you know, it's Jesus. He says, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And he was clear that, you know, un- under Caesar, you paid taxes, and there was a political system, and there were things you did under that secular government. And, you know, what you did under God's laws was something else. And he, he was okay with that, and and you know, pe- people don't understand. So so to say we're going to get everybody to to defend that first, they've got to understand what it is, and agree that that those underlying you know, principles are really uh, what you know. The give me liberty or give me death. That's what we were fighting about. And if you can't, you know, if you can't kind of break through and say, this, you know, he, here's kind of. The, the evidentiary basis for what I'm what I'm saying and get and get agreement, then it's really all for naught. Well, the, you know, and, and that's part of the conundrum that's presented with Chris Mooney's work is that it, it does seem as though there is a significant portion of the populace whose brains are wired to reject evidence. And, and to be fair, he finds that to be true on both sides. Of course, uh, uh, you know, of course. yeah, but um, but it, it, it's a fascinating way that we have to reframe our arguments at this point. I, I I should note though that you know one thing I have learned is that you can't go about quoting the Bible in these sort of arguments because that's a one way road you never get out of. It's oh, it's hysterical because when I was writing the chapter on secular government, they, there are I mean you can you could be a conservative, a progressive, a liberal, a socialist, a communist, and find substantive arguments for your positions in the Bible. So you can cherry pick and choose all you want. And that's, you know, that is one reason why that I'm sorry, that is not the governing document for a, you know, a political, a political government, a political system. And it just, I, I find it you know, sad and frustrating because you know, there's just not much that um, I think creates a problem in terms of, of our political democracy for religions. You know, it's the other way around. It's, you know, religions, when they come in and want to to sort of mess with um, our, our political system, you know, that, that, you know, my God doesn't like this person, so let's throw out um, our um, constitutional protections because my God doesn't like this person, uh, whether it's a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or, you know, a gay or a, you know, whatever. And, and you just, people have to have to understand that, that there's a give and take when you've got a secular government, but basically they're going to have to, to go along with the whole big tolerance concept because in a democracy, you know, all are, cons- are equal and all people have uh, their civil and constitutional rights, and you know, just because your upbringing or or your religious tenets might conflict with that, doesn't mean that that our secular government is going to, um, you know, to, to accede to that. Talking to Catherine Cryer, and we have Catherine just a few more minutes here, and I I want to edge into what you and I first talked about when I placed the call today is. This will be heard over the weekend, but today is Thursday. We're recording the show, and this is the day that the ruling on the health care came out from the Supreme Court. Already we hear a number of people who are so appalled by the ruling they're threatening to move to Canada, which is rich with irony. (laughs) 
You know, it's, my God, we're going to become Canada. We're just going to become a bunch of socialists. But by George, we're moving there. Exactly. Yeah, okay. But if if we cut off that angle of extremists and talk more about the people who are trying to fathom what life under this new rule will be like, do you see the new ruling on health care to be a stepping stone that will get us to a better place, maybe even single payer? Or is this going to be the reality that we are going to be living with for some time now? This is the health care law that we're going to have to be with. No, I just I find it absolutely extraordinary because because in the early nineties when when Bill Clinton was pushing for health care reform, the head of the American uh, Health Care Insurance Association went in hat in hand begging for an individual mandate supported by many, many Republicans uh, because he knew that 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 would forestall single payer and that would also uh, create this amazing flow of customers for the private sector and that private the private insurance industry would continue to control our insurance industry um, as late and I've got plenty of quotes in the healthcare chapter you, you know as late as as 0708, lots of Republicans. Uh, Newt Gingrich, plenty of sitting senators. The mandate, you know, you can't get away. Um, personal responsibility means you are going to buy insurance so that I don't have to pay for free letters running into the emergency room uh, because they're not willing to, to fess up and, and, and buy, for, buy their insurance. So the individual mandate is, is securing control by the private sector. Uh, they they should be loving this, and I think secretly many of them are, uh, even though they keep pushing further to the right. The whole Medicare mandate um, issue doesn't bother me too much because it simply doesn't change the system. If states want more of this Medicaid money, they're going to have to agree to some terms. If they don't want the money, Supreme Court said, you know, you don't have to take it, and, and you're you're fine with with whatever system you've got in place. It's going to be um, interesting to see which states actually pick that up. I'm afraid that brings us to time, but I, I really appreciate your giving us the time. And uh, I, look, well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Good. And I hope to talk to you in the future. Okay. Take care. Catherine Cryer is an Emmy and DuPont Columbia Award winning journalist, also the youngest state judge to ever be elected in Texas. You know her from her work on CNN and elsewhere, and she's currently working to produce television, film, and documentary projects. I'm Angie Coro. On In Deep Next, we're going to be talking more about the health care judgment from the Supreme Court. Stick around.
This is In Deep. I'm Angie Coro. Well, as you just heard, we finished our conversation with Catherine Cryer talking about this week's development from the Supreme Court, the affirmation of, oh, I guess you can say the 99% of Obama's health care plan. And there's a little bit of uh, tradition that we're honoring here on In Deep. Jason Rosenbaum, who spent a good long time with Healthcare for America Now, has joined me on three consecutive shows that I hosted to give us perspective on what's happening with healthcare in America. So Jason, I wanted to bring you back because obviously it's a landmark day this Thursday as we record the show. And uh, I just want to bring you back to wrap it up with me. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Well, let me ask you your initial gut reaction to what you heard this morning. Well, let's let's discard the false headlines that came out. Once the true story came out this morning, were you, what, almost completely pleased? I was almost completely pleased. I think that's a great way to describe it. You know, I spent uh, a good couple years of my life working to pass this bill. Um, obviously, the issue of health care is personal to so many people, so it was a big relief to me to see the ruling. When yeah, There's something about us on the left that we never seem to be able to celebrate with our whole heart. And the dialogue started almost immediately about, well, this is just another boost for the insurance companies. We need to not have this. We need to have single payer, et cetera. Can you envision what has just been approved by the Supreme Court as perhaps a stepping stone to something better? Not that it will cure us of our habit of being inherently negative, but, you know, is there more to be hoped for in, in, in the future? Is this a good start, basically? Absolutely. I think winning begets more winning. I think it's hard to imagine how we get to a better healthcare system by starting with a loss. Um, I think we absolutely need uh, real competition to private insurance companies. I think a single-payer system would be absolutely great. I think this is the road to that. Do you think America understands, and I mean the average person who doesn't follow politics every day of his or her life, do they understand what, quote-unquote, Obamacare is and what it does for them? I don't think so, mostly because uh, most of the benefits of Obamacare have not gone into effect yet. I think people with kids between the ages of 18 and 26 definitely understand because for the last year or so, those kids have allowed uh, been allowed to stay on their parents' plans, people like my brother, for instance. And so my mother absolutely knows uh, what this bill is does for her at least so far. But the big benefits, the insurance exchanges, a lot of the insurance company regulation, uh, the the subsidies that people will get to buy insurance have not gone into effect yet, though you're going to see more and more of that. Uh, The first checks just started going out from the insurance companies back to people because they spent too much money on things other than healthcare because uh, the the new law makes sure they have to spend 80%. I think that's going to be a big wake-up call for people when they get a check from their insurance companies that basically says, we're sorry, we didn't spend enough money on your care. Here's a refund. That's going to be a dramatic moment for a lot of people. I'm just visualizing the average person getting hold of that check and saying, you know, the light going on. That's right. Jason Rosenbaum has been a frequent guest on my shows, and he spent a long time working on getting this health care passed with his work with Health Care for America Now. I have to ask you, Jason, you spent an awful long time in the media uh, doing appearances and trying to get these messages across. One of the things that struck me this morning was that when the health care decision came out, a lot of media did take the focus to what does this mean, and they attempted to break it down. But just as much or perhaps even more was the horse race. What does this do for Obama? What does this do for Romney? 
do you think that's misplaced? And, you know, if, if we do have to break it down, do, do you think that Obama's machine is powerful enough that they can, you know, get this message out properly, let people really understand what the victory is here? I think it's inevitable that the media is going to focus on the horse race. It's, you know, the summer and an election year, and, and that's how they pay their bills. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. I, I think more people need to know what this bill does, and I think more people will now that it will be implemented and won't be stopped by the Supreme Court. In terms of what it does, and you know, for the horse race, you know, Romney does not, you know, healthcare is not really a comfortable thing for Mitt Romney, right? He advocated uh, something that looked a lot like this bill, though I think this bill goes a lot farther in terms of insurance regulations and things like that. Uh, so it's not really a comfortable issue for him. I think the Obama campaign, you know, is going to have a, a lot of room to run on this and get out a message. What's your impression of the mileage that the Republicans might be getting, not necessarily for the president, but for their power in the in the four years to come with this move that they're immediately making to repeal this? The House Republicans are moving to get this repealed as soon as they get back in July. I think it's no secret that health care fires up the Republican base. We saw that very clearly in 2010. I don't think it's going to have as much leverage now. People are kind of tired of it. The Republicans have voted to repeal this bill at least three or four times now, and they're just going to do it again, and it's just going to die in the Senate again. I think now that the Supreme Court has upheld it, they they run the risk of looking kind of ever more petty. And I think what we just saw, you know, this afternoon, they voted on contempt for Eric Holder in an unrelated issue. But uh, I even saw people like Joe Scarborough you know, Republican commenting that it was just terrible optics for the Republicans after what happened at the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I should note for 17 Democrats that joined them as well. We did hear a, a quote on National Public Radio, and I think it was Eric Cantor who was saying, the American people do not support this health care reform. Is this accurate? Are the, are the numbers on the side of the Republicans, even if, if the current trend is not? I think it depends what you ask. There was a great uh, some great analysis that came out uh, before this ruling came down about the money that's been spent on either side. Uh, I think something of on the order of $200 million spent against it and only about $60 million spent for it. So when you pull on the attacks that have $200 million behind them, you will find a lot of people uh, repeating or believing those attacks. But when you pull things like the core benefits of the bill, should everybody have insurance, should insurance companies be regulated, should insurance companies not be allowed to deny care for pre-existing conditions, those kinds of things, people overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly support those. Jason Rosenbaum, in addition to your other credentials I mentioned earlier, I want to thank you for being my introduction to AffordableCareCat.com. Until you tweeted about that, I hadn't known, so <laughs> we'll add that to your list of accomplishments. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Jason Rosenbaum currently lives in Washington, D.C., and we'll put up that link, by golly, affordablecarecat.com at our website, indeepradio.com. Stick around for more. I'm Angie Claro. In Deep Radio is a production of Talkback Media. We are supported in part by our listeners. Talkback Media produces discussions on key political, social, and cultural issues available for live, digital, audio, and video venues. Learn more online at indeepradio.com. And if you are in a position to help us keep on the air, click one of the PayPal links on the side of the page. One-time gifts or a small monthly donation, whatever works for you. We appreciate it. Thanks.
I'm Angie Carr. You're listening to In Deep, talking about the approval of the health care plan, of Obama's health care plan by the Supreme Court. And what does it mean for us in the long term? Come across an article at the Nonprofit Quarterly at nonprofitquarterly.org, and it's written by Rick Cohen. What to expect now that the Supreme Court has upheld Obama's health care law? Exactly the topic of this uh, of the rest of this hour, Rick. So I thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you're not a Johnny come lately to this. You have been following the health care initiatives since it first started out with Barack Obama, and and with your affiliation with the Nonprofit Quarterly, uh, you pointed out early on that there were gaps for nonprofit companies in here. Well, I mean, actually, early on, uh, one of the problems was that people forgot that nonprofits are themselves employers. So when people were concerned, particularly the White House was concerned that uh, that the employees and the businesses that are small businesses employing less than uh, uh, 25 people or less than 50 people, uh, they forgot that nonprofits were also in that mix. The White House came up with a tax credit to help small businesses afford to buy insurance, and they forgot that nonprofits don't pay taxes. Mm. So to offer them a tax credit didn't really help them any. And uh, we pointed that out, uh, and we were very lucky to find some members of uh, Congress who said, yeah, that's a real issue, and they came up with a modified version of the credit to give nonprofits something, unfortunately not as much as they would, as for-profit businesses would get. So it still remains an issue, but we've, we've been following it basically from the nonprofit angle. How does the Healthcare reform affect nonprofits. How do they fare in the in the whole mix of things? What's going to happen to funding? What's going to happen to their roles? What's going to happen to nonprofits that have a health mission as well? So well, partially, that's what I was looking at in my article. What's interesting about that is that this anticipates your first point that you make in your current article, which we're linking from our website, by the way, uh, indeepradio.com. You'll find all of the columns of Rick Cohen's that we're discussing. Uh, In your current article, what to expect now that the Supreme Court has upheld the health care law, you say that you're anticipating more opposition advocacy, groups like, as you did with nonprofit companies, groups that we're going to be hearing from, as we've already seen a bit from the Catholic Church and other companies as well. Essentially, we're going to have people weighing in in their own interest. How does this work in a case where the health care law has now been found to be law? What's to the advantage of these advocacy groups to be piping up and saying, listen to our complaint? Well, you're going to have two kinds of advocacy that's going to go on. I mean, remember that in the in the past two years since the law was passed, the opposition to the law spent $235 million in issue ads alone complaining about the Affordable Care Act, which is an amazing number. $235 million of an astounding amount of money to raise just to basically uh, oppose the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, the advocacy that they will probably continue... I think you probably heard today that uh, Eric Cantor in, the, in Congress and John Boehner have scheduled a vote early in July to to overturn the entire legislation to repeal it. Yeah, unfortunately, so, I'm hearing the early signals is that nobody expects that to work. Oh no, nobody's going to. That's not going to work. So what they're probably going to do is they're going to continue to basically chip away to oppose different aspects of the law. You'll find that they'll oppose, as I pointed out. Uh, the issue of how religious organizations are treated in the law. And you have the Catholic Church and the uh, U.S. Conference of Bishops basically uh, uh, advocating that the law is a threat to individual and religious freedom. Mm-hmm. You'll, have, uh, you'll have advocacy that will occur by the opposition to basically oppose various elements of the funding that is necessary because it takes money to implement health care reform. 
So you'll, you'll see that kind of advocacy continue on that side. On the other side, I think it's going to be actually an even harder issue for uh, the progressive groups that fought for this bill because the advocacy goes from advocating for health care reform to now advocating for the architecture to make health care reform work. Mm. And that's, that's sort of like the, you know, getting into the nuts and bolts of, well, what do you do to make this stuff happen? And that's going to put, uh, that's going to be a challenge to groups like uh, uh, Healthcare for America Now and Community Catalyst and others to basically say, well, how do we mobilize people to promote the right kind of policies, particularly at the state levels, to make sure this actually happens and happens in the right way and covers the maximum amount of people? So it's going to be a challenge on the, on the progressive side to find the resources to continue their advocacy, given the fact there's going to be lots of money on the, on the other side, mm-hmm. and to do advocacy on sort of the, the less exciting kind of building a, a program part as opposed to fighting for a right. Well, you know, you were talking about in your article uh, expecting resistance to health exchanges in some states, and, and in this case, we're talking about a deadline item. I mean, theoretically, this should be up and running in the next 18 months. And even were everyone willing to pitch in and get that done, it's not practical to assume that it'll get finished. Well, I think that's going to be one of the real challenges in advocacy again, which is that each state has to come up with its own exchange. You see that of the states that have actually come up with their health ex- uh, insurance exchanges, some are uh, thinking of this as a public sector operation, some are using quasi-public mechanisms to administer them. Hawaii has created a nonprofit corporation to administer it. And you have the bulk of states all sitting there going, well, we'll get around to it soon. It better get around fast. So I have a feeling to some extent, while the cases were faced were in the Supreme Court, many people said, well, let's wait till the court decides before we, uh, before we really put our heavy artillery into getting this stuff done. Now's the time. This is now the time where the advocates have to move to their state capitals and say, let's get this stuff moving. Now, some states are going to say, we, we won't do it. Yes. But I think that's going to be very few. And when it comes down to it in the end, most states will say, well, you know, to basically deny uh, low-income people in our states the ability to buy affordable insurance on a health exchange is going to be something that politically is kind of unpalatable. So maybe a very hard ideologue like uh, Bobby Jindal of uh, Louisiana might try to pull that off. There are an awful, awful lot of people living in the lower class in Louisiana that might take that out on him. Even he has to consider that. He might want to consider that as well. I mean, it's a little bit like the stimulus law. Remember when, uh, when the stimulus was proposed, you had all these uh, Republican governors who said, we will not take the stimulus. In the end, they did. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they very rarely turned down money. Even there was a governor of Alaska named Palin who, uh, who ended up taking it out. Of course, she had to be forced to. Her legislature basically overruled her to take it. But they basically, they came around and took it. So right now, you'll find a number of, uh, of states will say, we're still going to go slow. Some states will say, uh, there's a part of the, you know, the decision today that didn't go the, uh, the Obama administration's way. Mm-hmm. which was on the ability of states to reject the expansion of Medicaid coverage. Because remember, part of the bill, part of the legislation, covers people not through private health insurance, but through an expansion of Medicaid. Right. And the, uh, the legislation and what the administration tried to do was to say states had to accept the expanded program, or if they didn't, they would lose all their Medicaid money. 
Mm-hmm. And the court said you can't do that to them. Right, although so future money can be predicated on this. Like, well, uh, basically, they were, they were saying that uh, the court said you can't threaten states on their past money, even on their current money. Mm-hmm. If, if they're getting X amount of money from Medicaid, and the expanded program would give them X plus Y, the federal government can't say, well, take away your X if you don't agree to X plus Y. Got it. All right? Yes. All right? <laughs> and so you would think, and so you know, right now you have a number of states going, well, we're, we're definitely going to opt out of the expanded Medicaid program. We're not going to do this. You watch. This will be just like the, the, uh, the, uh, the stimulus program because the expanded Medicaid program provides coverage for people up to 133% of poverty line. That's not wealthy. I mean, for a family of four, that's an income of $30,700. Right. You think they're going to basically say to those people, we're not going to allow you to have coverage on the expanded Medicaid, so you're going to sit in this gap between our old Medicaid law and the private insurance that's available? They won't, they'll come around. There's so, much more in your, there's so much more in your article I wish we had time to get to, but we don't, so I'm going to point people to it, and we're going to put the link up to it on our website as well. Talking to Rick Cohen, and he is the national correspondent for the Nonprofit Quarterly. Thank you so much for giving us some time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Coming up in our next hour of In Deep, we'll talk to the director of Bitter Seeds, a documentary about the farming crisis in India. Stick around for that. You can follow us on Twitter at InDeep Radio. We're on Facebook at InDeep with Angie Coiro. Welcome to our new station, KKRN in Round Mountain, California. And a strange preoccupation with other people's private parts. They want us to do what they say. Thanks for tuning in this week to In Deep with Angie Coiro, a production of Talkback Studios. You can get more information about us at indeepradio.com. And while you're there, you can become a member and support our work. There's a link there to contact us, too, with any questions or feedback. We're developing a series on mental health issues in our country, especially in this economy, and we'd love to have you be part of that. Please send us your topic suggestions, your stories, and your questions through our website. Click the contact button at indeepradio.com. Join us again this time next week for two more hours of in-depth conversation. I'm Angie Carr. We'll see you then. You're listening to WPWC, 1480 AM, Dumfries, Virginia. We Act Radio, home of Washington's progressive working community.